2: Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast on New Books Network. My name is Huiying Chen, one of the hosts on this channel. Recently, I spoke with Patterson Gish on his new book, Corporate Conquests. This book re-examines patterns of ethnic and economic inequality persisting in the rural, largely minority regions of China's North and Southwest. Such inequality has been commonly attributed to geography, access to resources, and recent political developments. This book, instead, provides a desperately needed challenge to these conventional understandings by tracing the disempowerment of minority communities to the very beginnings of China's modern development, focusing on the emergence of private and state corporations in Yunnan province during the late 1800s and early 1900s the book reviews how entrepreneurs centralized corporate power even as they expanded their business throughout the southwest and into Tibet, Southeast China Asia, Southeast Asia and eastern China bringing wealth and cosmopolitan lifestyles to their hometowns the merchant owners also gained greater access to commodities at the expense Of the Southwest's many indigenous minority communities. Meanwhile, new concepts of development shaped the creation of state-run corporations, which further concentrated resources in the hands of outsiders. This book reveals how important new ideas and structures of power, now central to the Communist Party's repertoire of rule and oppression, were forged not along China's east coast, but along the nation's internal borderlands. It is a must-read for anyone wishing to learn about China's unique state capitalism and its contribution to inequality. It is a fascinating book and beautifully written. It provides challenges to many conventionally writings on this topic, asking why question to many taken-for-granted statements, which turned out, as Pat will show us, in most of the cases, incomprehensive, ahistorical, and untrue. And I really hope you get a chance to read the book, and I also hope you will enjoy my conversation with Pat that follows. I'm here today with Pat and his new book, Corporate Conquests. Business, the State, and Origins of Ethnic Inequality in Southwest China. Welcome to the new books, Pat, and thank you so much for taking the time talking to me today.
0: Thank you for having me, Huiying. I really appreciate your taking time to uh, put together some questions uh, on the book, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to discussing it with you.
2: Great. Yes. Um So why don't we start our conversation at the beginning by asking your beginning? So how did you come to write a book, uh, to write this book?
0: So I think um, uh, I'll start this story with my previous work and my previous book. Um, I had been researching on Southwest China and Yunnan province in particular. Uh, And um, I examined how in the 18th and 19th centuries, settlers had moved into the Southwest and interacted with various indigenous people. And the outcome of that book or that project was the book Asian Borderlands. And in the, in the archives, the, the sprawling Qing archives that I looked at for that book, um, there were lots of references to peddlers and to merchants, and they were often presented in very stereotyped ways. Um, these were government documents, so they're being written by Qing officials. And those officials were um, often um, thinking in terms of merchants and so on as, as, as people who made governance in borderlands areas more difficult. And um, I wanted to, because these merchants and peddlers kept showing up in the archives so much, I wanted to dig more deeply into who these people were. Um, but that proved to be, uh, a, a difficult question and, um, it's taken me now, uh, about a dozen years or so to, uh, figure out who these merchants were. And also as I started to investigate, uh, into them and their stories and place them within their communities and think about how their actions were transforming uh, a region. I also began to realize that I couldn't really tell their story without also looking at the state and its commercial efforts, uh, the changing ideas, especially in the late 19th century, about what a state is and what a state does and how it's involved in economy. And so this book then uh, has been really a a long journey from that initial question about uh, who are the merchants uh, to a much broader um, discussion of changing corporate institutions, changing ideas about development and how a state is involved, and then uh, the final sort of piece of this story, um, how corporate development, both private and state, impacts communities.
2: Wonderful. I think as you were um, recapping, um, I kept hearing terms about um, the stories, personal stories of the merchants and combined with um not stories, but probably history of the state effort. And that's one of the interventions you're making, that a star, a book combining um, explorations of the private sectors as well as the state sectors. And you were talking about who were the merchants, who were these Vietnamese merchants. And um, maybe you could start with what you were talking about in chapter one, this um this um, person, Yan Zizhen, and I really like one phrase you're talking about, a militeer without a mule What about his story?
0: Yeah, y- Yan Zizhen is a fascinating uh, person. Uh, he was born in uh, the village or the town of Xizhou in Yunnan province. And um, his father died when he was, he was young. And that meant that um, although his mother remarried, he really had to make his own way uh, in, in life. And what he did was to start to get involved in trade. He became one of these peddlers or itinerant merchants that I, I often had seen in the Qing uh, archives. And... Um, He's uh, the reason I called him a muleteer without a mule, is he originally started off, I think, with a donkey, um, and he was trudging from village to village selling tulbu, a uh, sort of local cloth, um, and so it, it really the the story of uh, private merchants starts with Yan Zizhen because he comes from a town that uh, is the source of quite a few trade companies that are built in the the latter half of the 19th and into the 20th centuries. And he teams up with several other partners to create a shareholding partnership um, that allows him to move up in life from this itinerant merchant status to actually being the general manager and part owner of a very big international trading company. And he becomes quite wealthy uh, over time. Initially, I was thinking of uh, calling this book um, From Muleteers to Millionaires because Yan Zijan started as a muleteer without a mule Mm -hmm. and (laughs) died as a millionaire.
2: With many millions.
0: <laughs> with, with many millions and beautiful houses, a couple of be- beautiful houses, one in Shijo Town, one on uh, the Arhai Lake. and um, But Chapter 1 really tries to um, do more than just tell this personal story. It, it looks at how these businesses were built in terms of corporate governance And in terms of some of the record keeping in bookkeeping practices that I argue really helped to uh, give the shareholders control over these companies, even as they expanded um, to become uh, geographically quite large organizations where there would be branch managers stationed up in Sichuan. Uh, collecting uh, silk, which was then exported to the br- through the branches in uh, in Burma, modern Myanmar. Uh, they had branches ultimately up in uh, Tibetan areas of, of Western Sichuan or Qam, where they were collecting medicines. Uh, which were then exported down into uh, China and sometimes around the the world, and it was really fascinating to try to figure out. I mean, as, as you know, these are these are really rugged, vast expanses of territory, and so how can people um, create organizations that can? Um, allow them to trade across these vast expanses. And and the the first chapter is really an effort to try to uh, understand that. And it's an effort to, in particular, look at Yunnan companies that uh, grew up in the late 19th and the first half of the 20th centuries because I um, was pushing back to some degree uh, against histories of the Southwest that really only see outsiders as those who make history or change the Southwest. These were, um, in the case of Yan Zijun, uh, uh, a guy from a, a Minjia or a Bai background in the case of some of the other companies, Han, uh, Han, Han families that had been in, in Yunnan for many centuries. They weren't recent migrants uh, at all, and so I was trying to examine how uh, Yunnanese themselves were really transforming the world in which they lived.
2: Yeah, um, I think I want to follow up one one um, things you mentioned when telling the chapter one retelling chapter one. So we. Um, heard the fascinating life story of this one person, Yan Zizhen, and he is indeed a resident of Yunnan. But I wonder um, what is special about his story, and not being a just individual successful story, but rather representing a larger um, phenomenon happening at Yunnan specifically. And actually, as you show us, the Yunnan Ni, there is um, this emergence of a Yunnan Ni's vision or version of modernity that's represented by uh, Yan Zizhen or his corporate um, Yongchang Xiang. Um, and how 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 would you how do you link his personal story to the larger um, Yunnan Ni story? And how is this Yunnan Ni story different from Hokkien story or Shanxi, uh, er, in earlier time, Shaanxi merchants were also doing national and transnational trading.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's some really important overlaps um, between the, the Yunnanese story and say the Hokkien story. Um, the, the Yunnanese transnational experience Um, became extremely important. These companies, uh, as they expanded, were placing men and boys for long periods of time, uh, especially in Burma, uh, but also elsewhere in uh, in India, uh, in Hong Kong. Um, And so this experience of going abroad and staying for a long time is, of course, shared by uh, many Chinese in the in the 19th and uh, early 20th centuries. Um, also shared with many Chinese is, um, including with Hokkien, is a uh, a concern for uh, reinvesting in the hometown and. Not just contributing to the hometown itself, but also reinvesting in ways that would help build China. Now, it's here where the Yunnanese experience, um, I'm not sure that it's here that the Yunnanese experience becomes somewhat distinct, I would say. And... um, from my various reading and reading of uh, other scholarship, uh, James Cook has written on this. Um, Hokkien reinvestment in shaman uh, uh, and in, in Fujian, in part emphasized um, the building up of school systems and the um, development of sort of a modern Confucian society, if I understand that scholarship correctly. For the Yunnanese, um, there was a real rejection, or at least for some Yunnanese merchants, is a real rejection of, of tradition and Confucianism. Um, when they were in Burma, people like Yan Zijun and his firm Yongchangshang became involved in helping to build schools um, for the children of uh, Chinese migrants. And they became involved in that because they were increasingly concerned about uh, acculturation or assimilation. Their experience with Uh, The British colonial government included um, that colonial government investing in building out school systems, and they were worried about their children going to those schools and losing their Chinese heritage, basically. That experience then um, impressed upon them the importance of uh, having control over education, having control over schools in order to uh, not only preserve identity in Burma, but also to help to rebuild China and rebuild their hometowns. And um, when they got involved, though, in investing in education back in their hometowns, they faced a really strong sort of um uh, national study movement, uh, Guoshu movement, in, in which was uh, pretty powerful in Southwest China uh, at the time. We're talking the 1920s, uh, late 1920s uh, or so. And uh Yunnanese merchants really they, they came to see this emphasis on on the national education movement, which included sort of trying to reinterpret tradition, Confucianism for a new world. They saw this as as sort of helping to preserve backwardness in in their hometowns. And so they really became they really started to push back against Confucianism, traditional education. Um which I think made them somewhat different than um, merchants in in other parts of of China uh, at the time. But certainly their commitment to um, trying to uh, build a stronger China by starting at the village level, uh, this was, I think, uh, something that they shared with with others.
2: I think what you just... uh... Told briefly, summarized the gist or some portion of the gist that covered in chapter two and chapter three about these Vietnamese merchants going abroad, particularly to Burma. And what you made clear in the book, um, which I like to emphasize, and maybe you could help me elaborate further, is by going to Burma for these Vietnamese merchants. Du- Vietnamese merchants during um, early 19th early 20th century is something that made their experience unique that was particularly the time of under British colonial rule that it's different from going to Japan or going to America as later on but a particular um Observation or experience living in a society that, in between, that under colonial or imperialist regime, that they witness both um, very strong state presence in everyday life as well as uh, on the ground pushbacks to um, those efforts. That's why probably they come up with their own version of what they want to do um, back home and also in their new. A new home in Burma.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a good way to 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 put it. Um, it was certainly the the time in Burma uh, when uh, the colonial state was beginning to um, have a greater influence through the through the schooling system. Um, and when you combine that with where they had emigrated from in the politics of the, the hometowns in, in Yunnan, I think that's where you, when you start to look at these different uh, contexts, that's what really sort of shaped Yunnanese visions of, of modernity um, and made them a little bit different uh, than, than other places. I think we, we may be getting to this at some point uh, in the discussion, but I also just wanted to point out that uh, it was in this time period uh, too, that uh, especially in the 1930s, as Burma, as the, as the British were getting ready to separate Burma from India, that uh, another really important uh, group of uh, people in the, in the book um, they were shaped by the developments in in Burma as well. And that is uh, Thai elites, um, ethnic Thai elites in in Western Yunnan. And they were really sort of watching some of the political changes taking place in the 1930s and then again in the post-war period. And they were watching some of their, literally their relatives, but people who were closely related culturally and politically to them, uh, the Shan in upper Burma, um, being impacted by discussions of representation and uh, autonomy and even independence uh, in Burma. And this too shaped visions in in Yunnan of of a possible future of a special zone or autonomy for Uh, Thai elites who also, like the Han and Minja merchants, had strong connections into Upper Burma.
2: Yeah, I think that is um, particularly what Chapter 4 was exploring about um, this political vision or political idea of what come next for Yunnan or for China at that particular moment. And um, it's fascinating to read not just the uh, stories of Yunnanese firms, labors, but also for me is to, um, one thing interesting for me is to notice all these, um, maybe not strange, but extraordinary surnames <laughs> that is indeed uh, mark out their um, identity maybe not necessarily ethnicity or racial identity, but definitely something um, not for an Englander, not Englander, <laughs> for a person not from England, then I have to look up uh, what uh, is this last name. And that might also mark out their own um, unique identity amidst this flow of migrant or flow of, transnational or different ideas about commerce, about politics, about, I don't know, self-identity. And there's one thing you were talking about, how it is different for um, them, for Yunnanese, um, from those American uh, who wanted to mark, to uh, the rising elites of American who want to mark out their um, distinction. And I really like that comparison.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think so. It, it, in the in the larger picture of the of the book or the larger story of the book, what I'm trying to understand really is um, how some areas of uh, Yunnan become quite quite wealthy. Um, they aren't large areas; they're the hometowns of of these, uh, merchants in these firms, uh, the town, like town, the town, uh, Shizhou where Yan Zizhen, uh, came, came from and, um, how those firms, how the merchant firms helped to bring wealth to those areas and also extract wealth from other areas, um, Thai areas, Kampa areas, uh, and so on. Um, in bringing wealth to their to their hometowns, um, Yunanese merchants, um, you know they 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 had to develop self representations. I think which helped to explain or rationalize why they had this wealth. And um, one of the things that helps to rationalize uh, wealth for growing merchant uh, groups in, in China as a whole. And this is something that Wen Xin Ye explored for, for Shanghai is to um, demonstrate how this growing wealth and the, the reinvestment in um, hometowns and so on is, is good for the, the nation as a whole. And, um, this does, this, this does make it make self-representation of these merchants a little different than, um, the growing, um, merchant class in the United States in the 19th, early 20th century, uh, where, uh, individualism is, is, uh, is prized and, um, there's less concern if I understand it um, with uh, having to justify in terms of what's good for the the nation as a whole.
2: And before we move on to um, the second part about state effort, I feel chapter four is um, a very peculiar chapter. (laughs) (laughs) that it seems to uh, talk about these Yunnan merchants, these wealthy Yunnan merchants or national and transnational private uh, firms, what they were doing to um, the people of another province. A kind of flipped story where they were usually being told by other historians. So usually the story is Yunnanese indigenous people were being exploited and outer outsiders are the winners, but here in this chapter four, located situated in Sichuan, Calm the area, these Yunnanese, these Yunnanese merchants, even though a select elite group, they become the exploiter, and they are not doing harm, but they are influencing, exerting control over the local population at Sichuan at Calm.
0: Yeah. I- so again in the in the story, the larger story of, of the book um, I was really interested to, to think about how how Yunnanese merchants built their companies and then how that influenced their their hometowns, how they helped to create, places like Shizhou and Hexun and Chong into these into these um, sort of oases of, of, of privilege and modern institutions where there were libraries and new schools and medical clinics and so on. But the flip side of that question is, how did the activities of these corporations influence other areas? in which in which they do business. And um, one of the important I think one of the important things that these Union's corporations are able to do as they adopt their bookkeeping, their new bookkeeping practices and their new corporate governance practices, and they as they expand geographically, is that they're able to gain a lot of commercial influence in Western Sichuan income. And so their businesses really, at least initially, revolve around several types of trade. One is Sichuanese silk to Burma and the importing of Burmese cotton into Yunnan, where cotton isn't grown. But also then medicines trade and the trading of gold dust and other products out out of Western Sichuan, out of uh, Tibetan areas or Kampa areas uh, of uh, Western Sichuan, and the importing of tea, Yunnanese tea, into Tibetan areas. And so these are sort of the large kind of commodity flows that these uh, corporations are are involved in. And... As other scholars, Patrick Booz in particular, has shown, um, the the Yunnanese export of tea into uh, Western Sichuan, into, into Tibetan areas of Western Sichuan and in, into Tibet, um, really increases a lot in the early 20th century. And it increases just as these companies are beginning to be um very effective in terms of ex- expanding their reach. So there's uh, there's obviously a correlation and I would argue causation uh, there. Um, so what happens to Tibetan communities in which these companies are selling tea and buying uh, medicines? Uh, things like caterpillar fungus or chongcao or beimo or some of these other um, medicines that were exported out of highland uh, areas. Um, it, it took a little bit of work, but what, the, what I was able to do in the book is really to show how um, these companies are really at, a, at the top of a pyramid of extraction From these communities in which um, increasingly Tibetan medicine gatherers uh, or hunters, in the case of gathering of of musk, are at the bottom of this pyramid and and just really sort of getting by. Uh, Increasingly, they're reliant on collecting these commodities, Um, but it's really the companies that profit uh, the most from them. And so this is feeding into this larger argument about where the origins of inequality um, or how, the, how inequality is really sort of created in modern times uh, in Southwest China. And I would argue uh, across Western China as a whole, not just in the Southwest necessarily.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: what we have talked about, chapter 1 to chapter 4, explores this question from the perspective or from the stories of private firms. Whether it started from peddlers and growing into large transnational firms or um, their um, their presence in Burma, what they did um, at their hometown or in the neighboring province of Sichuan. And, Chapter two, uh, not chapter, part two, um, consists of another three chapters explore, I think the same question, but from the side of state effort, state endeavor. How did state um, came in and not necessarily create but further strengthen or um, exacerbate the inequality at this ethnic inequality at this region. And from my understanding, one of the things you're um, pushing against is not to um, pinpoint this state inter- uh, state effort to post-1949, but rather to look at the whole issue back in time, um, as early as 1870s, uh, starting from the 1870s.
0: Yeah, I think... Um- you know, I think there's been a number of scholars who have done really terrific work to look at the issues of inequality, especially uh, economic inequality along ethnic lines in, in China from the 1950s forward or in the, um, in the post-Mao period. Uh, being beginning in 78, uh, 79. Uh, in particular, I've been influenced by Emily Yeah and um, Andrew Fisher and their, their work on Tibet, um, which has been uh, really outstanding. But I think it's really important to push back before the 1949 revolution, because I do think that not only can we begin to trace inequalities that are created by private firms, like we were just discussing. But um, there's a real transformation of uh, thinking about the state and thinking about the state's role in the economy, and then also thinking about how to administer, how to govern in very diverse areas uh, of the of the old empire, the old Qing empire, and so we're seeing these massive transformations in thinking beginning in the 1870s and the and the 1880s. Uh, and um, the book seeks to really sort of situate those those transformations, um, arguing that uh, the retaking of Xinjiang by Zuo Zongtang. Is really leading to uh, important new ideas about direct rule and um, moving away from the types of pluralistic rule that the Qing had really uh, mastered in certain ways in the seventeenth and eighteenth uh, centuries. And there's a there's an important economic uh, component of of this transformation. As we see um, Qing statesmen in the late 19th and early 20th centuries really um, pushing back against or moving away from the idea that indigenous elites, such as the Thai in Yunnan or the Kampas in uh, Western Sichuan, um, moving away from thinking about these people as legitimate uh, rulers, this is also the time period when um, we start to see the idea of the state um, being extremely important in terms of industrial and uh, economic development. And uh, particularly in the Southwest, mining and the exploitation of minerals becomes uh, extremely important, but we see a real split in my um, in, in my opinion, based on the the evidence I've seen. We see a real sort of split in terms of how uh, how a lot of statesmen think about the exploitation uh, of of minerals in Eastern China versus Western China, and there's a much more emphasis on sort of a role for the military or a much more sort of top-down approach to mineral exploitation in the the Southwest um, and probably in the Northwest uh, as well. And that's directly related to um, the increasing concerns about uh, the ethnic diversity of China's West. So there's this link made between Needing much more state involvement uh, and direction and control in the West because of the ethnic diversity of places like Yunnan, and so I'm I'm really trying to explore that through the through the um, development of uh, government involvement in the Yunnan mining industry.
2: Yes, and um, that is what Chapter Five: A Mining was um, discussing specifically kind of these earlier, um, earlier we're talking about late 19th century, earlier state efforts um, to um, kind of conquer or reconquer the mining industry uh, at Yunnan, particularly tin that, mining.
0: That's right. That's right. And I think what's really fascinating is that very early on, the idea of mechanizing of industrializing mining takes hold in, in Yunnan province. In in 1876, as a matter, as a matter of fact, it's first suggested uh, by the governor general, Leo Changyo. And th- this idea of having the state involved in mechanizing mining in Southwest China then is a story that I follow through chapters five uh, and six in particular, because the uh, the quest to have modern mining technology to mechanize mining in Yunnan actually becomes um, quite a long drawn out uh, process. It's first proposed in 1876, and then not really achieved until the early 1930s, and so. Um, that's where my, another one of my protagonists uh, comes on the scene, and that's uh, Miao Yuntai.
2: Yes, and that's my second favorite <laughs> protagonist <laughs> in
0: the book. Yeah, and Yan we'll Zijun. have a surprise. Yanzi, <laughs> Yan Jun was the first favorite
2: Yes, ju- uh, exactly because that wonderful phrase, a mule muleteer without a mule, and <laughs> <laughs> and a son without a father, and that just the phrase just stick in my head, and I think it's a wonderful opening of the entire book, and uh, we uh, I won't spoil, but we will have a surprise in the end about um, these two protagonists, <laughs> uh, a mystery. Um, that we will all review in a minute, but uh, this Miao Ying Tai, um, him being my second favorite, is his further um, transnational or further worldwide travel. That um, particularly he came to the United States and studied at um, various schools, but earned his bachelor degree in University of Minnesota on mining, and I think. Gain the internship at a local company, and then bringing back these new um international this new international experience and uh, new international ideas about imperialism, about state formation, about nationalism, and um, how industry, how commerce should be done to um his local Province, Yunnan, and as you were titling the chapter, chapter six, technocrat, and I think after um, Miao Yuntai Tai first um, had a relatively failed experience in calm, uh, Sichuan, and then came to Yunnan and collaborated or worked under this new um, governor, Long Yun. Uh, just a wonderful story. Is there anything you like to emphasize in this chapter? chapter six?
0: Yeah, I I I really came to appreciate Miao Yuntai uh as as well. I won't spoil it for the potential readers. I mean, there are certain thoughts about um what he may or may not have done. Um he wasn't perfect soul, but um, He really was a fascinating uh, figure, a a native Yunnanese um, who, uh, and this is where I think it's very important to emphasize going back before 1949 to really think about the long-term development, not only of inequality, but the organization of economy um, in, in China as a whole and in the Southwest uh, in in particular. Um, he goes to the University of Minnesota as you pointed out to study mining and he goes there under scholarship and he does so because in the it, it's a provincial scholarship because mining and the mechanization of mining becomes this dream in Yunnan in, in the late 19th century. Right, so what has come before him really sort of shapes his educational experiences and opportunities, um, but then his opportunities and experiences in turn revolve back and shape the institutions and in the way that mechanized mining emerges uh, in in Yunnan, uh, in the United States. Um, Shirin and others have uh, have suggested that he was influenced by corporate organization. He also had some experiences in, in Shanghai uh, as well. And it's these experiences in the US and in Shanghai, which um, as well as his background as a Yunnanese, which really uh, shaped shape the creative types of state-run corporations that Miao Yuntai tries to build in Yunnan. Um, the basic point is that um, he comes to see the state as being the most important investor and actor in terms of economic development in Western China, and especially in his home province of, of Yunnan, this is, I think, shaped by that longer history, going back to the late Qing of thinking about East China and West China as, as different in the state needing to be more aggressive in, in the West. But at the same time, he's not very impressed by earlier corporate organizations that the state was involved in, going back to Guandu Shangban or the the Qing efforts to have state oversight in merchant management. He feels that corporate organization um, in which uh, management is overseen by a, a board um, and uh, management is responsible for creating efficient and profit-oriented corporations. He thinks that this is the best Approach, and so he really seeks to try to create under corporate law efficient, profit-oriented corporate state-run corporations, which is quite different, I argue, um, than uh, the National Resources Commission, which was uh, creating a lot of the. state-run corporations at the national level in China at, at, at that time. Um, and I think that um, I like Miao because he, he really brings those experiences, those different, his identity as Yunnanese, his experience abroad, his experience in Shanghai, and creates these creative corporations, one of which success, successfully brings mechanized refining of tin, uh to Yunnan, but I also really like him because um he was ahead of the central government. He was doing these things a couple of years in advance of the National Resources Commission. And I I really think this is an example where if we want to really understand uh economic development in China, you can't just look at the East or the central government, you have to look at the West too, and in this case, uh Yunnan province, because they were they were really on the cutting edge of of designing new types of corporations for China in the in the 1930s.
2: And I shall add that um, it's not just looking at the West, but as um, Pat shows in the book, that um, there is um, I think Pat convincingly introduces an intervention that the influence of economic thoughts or development uh, should not be looked just from east to west, but there's also the trend from west going to east.
0: Yeah, I think... What I was referring to in particular there is that this earlier idea that the state needs to be much more involved in the West because of the diversity. It's here where we really need to understand ethnicity in China and and the the fears about the diversity of Western borderland communities and how that underpinned then um, arguments for the state taking a very active role in economic development. And those types of ideas really um, seem to influence Miao Yuntai, but then others in the Yunnan government as well, who are trying to design top-down um, outsider-controlled development schemes for uh, borderlands communities. That was That was true in Yunnan at the time. Um, and it was also true in in Sichuan uh at the time. So I think this is not just a a um a, a, a peculiarity to a single province. I think this is really more a countrywide sort of trend, and it's important to understand.
2: And um, up to now, we have been reading or hearing this two parallel stories. One is um, private firms or private corporates, and the other on state effort. And we have two leading characters, um, Yan Zizhen and Miao Yingtai, And I think the readers will, I hope you are like me, be surprised, amazed to find out when you are open to the first paragraph of chapter seven, and find a marvelous combination of the entire book, and also a meeting point of these two protagonists.
0: I'm, I'm, I'm madly looking for the beginning of uh, chap, <laughs> chapter seven. Um,
2: yeah, you're I, introducing this. I, I, this third. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean,
0: I think that uh, the this book was a really interesting book to write because I'm writing these two different stories. One about private corporations and, uh, one about state corporations, but then Miao Yuntai hires Yan Jun's son, uh, to come and work with him on economic development, uh, in the, in, in Yunnan province. And, um, the the son <laughs> the son's name is yang not yan ka chung because his be, because yan had been adopted and uh he had to have one of his sons have the surname of his previous father or his biological father so he could make offerings to him i guess and so yang has a different surname than his father uh Yan, but he went to Harvard Business School after going to um, some top universities uh, in in China, and then uh, returned to work for the Yunnanese developmental uh, state or or provincial government. I'm not quite sure how how to uh, phrase it. The bigger story that Yang. Helps that the, the introduction of Yang as a character helps us to understand is um, he goes to work for the Yunnan Provincial Government in Miao Yuntai uh, during the wartime period, and it's it's at this point that Miao Yuntai and the Yunnan Provincial Government really in it, it really pioneer efforts to start to bring private corporations under control. They start to use various import and export uh, rules and regulations to start to um, bring the business activities of private corporations under provincial control. Uh, and then they also start to actually um, compete directly with the private corporations by building state-run corporations that are, are involved in the same industries such as, uh, tea, uh, the production of tea and the transportation of, uh, of, of tea. And so what chapter seven really does then is to help us to understand how, um, during the wartime period, we start to see this trajectory of, uh, corporate conquest as I have called it, um. One meaning of which is that the state starts to build its own corporations, but also start to monitor and really come to control private corporations. And again, that trend really starts in, in Yunnan, but then as the central government moves to Chongqing and has a lot more influence in uh, Kunming and, and, and in Yunnan as a whole, we start to see the central government becoming involved in that process as, as well. But they really they start to uh, build central government involvement in um, the southwest's uh, state-run corporations and in monitoring private corporations on the platforms that Miao Yuntai in the in the Yunnan provincial government had already. Built.
2: And um, I think back to this third protagonist, the young Chung, I think in addition to serving as a culmination or concluding figure that joins these two stories, two storylines, I think it also provides a one of the kind of perspective toward, um, as you were talking about, towards later on, a really strong state pres- presence or state um, state entry into Yunnan province compared to or contradicting those um, local elites as represented by what you were starting in the book, uh, Fang Kesheng, a Thai elite, and these two um, local perspectives, two contrast- contrasting local perspectives to Kind of a final, culminating state conquering effort.
0: Yeah, so I guess we should talk about Fang Kesheng. <laughs> uh, yes. Now he, he, we, I start the book with him, but we we get to him uh, last. Hmm. So the larger story, um, as as um, Yan Zijun's son, Yang Kesheng, Kesheng. As as he joins uh, the book, the larger story actually brings us into the 1950s, and 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 really, what is an ongoing process then of uh, the state gaining control over private corporations, culminating in 1956 with the end of Yongchangshang and some of the other private firms that I, uh, that I document, they, uh, undergo or becoming, um, merging, uh, into, into public, uh, state, um, corporations. And, um, this is also, um, a time period when, uh, After the revolution, the communist state starts to use its increasing control over private corporations and their trade networks in order to really come to control um, indigenous communities, such as uh, the Kampo communities um, that were involved in the medicine trade networks uh, up in Western Sichuan, but also the Thai communities in Western uh, Yunnan that were also um, subject to, to um, private corporate uh, control. Local people in both places um, offered resistance to uh, first increasing private corporate control over commodities in their areas, uh, and then later state um, control over their regions, uh, as well. And Fang Shang really his story is a story of that is the, the way I choose to tell that story, uh, of resistance. Um, earlier in our discussion, I had mentioned the Thai elite of, of Western Yunnan with their connections um, to upper Burma, northern Myanmar, and to the Shan communities there. And uh, the book really finishes up by discussing how Fang uh, Khashogh, through his education in Burma, um, not unlike the elite uh, Chinese, Yunnanese merchants, who also, some of whom also had education in, in, in Burma. How is through his education in Burma and through his, um, his and others uh, personal contacts, they came to be able to explore ideas about political autonomy uh, or even independence. And um, in 1948, Fang Qasheng draws up a plan that he presents to the central government uh, for political autonomy in Western Yunnan for the Thai and Kachin uh, communities. And it's a a plan that lays out the possibilities for political autonomy, but also economic cooperation between uh, Western Yunnan, Thai, and Kachin communities on one hand, and uh the Yunnan provincial government and the central government on the other hand and what his vision really is is it's it's a vision that is the complete opposite of what has historically been developing in that region and in other borderlands regions what he envisions is uh, local control over commodities so Locals having much more control rather than private corporations having control over trade in their regions. And what he envisions also is a long-term plan in which these Thai areas will be able to have their own manufacturing of local raw materials, which they can then trade in China or in Myanmar and um it's just it's a vision of local control over local politics and local economy, which um, absolutely contradicts really sort of the top down planning in which outsiders and even migrants would have uh, control over economic development in regions of Western Sichuan and western western Yunnan and uh, Ultimately, that, um, that plan of Fang's is is uh, rejected. And I think if we really sort of think about the large picture of Western China as a whole uh, over the last um, 70 years or so, uh, Fang Qisheng's vision may have uh, possibly led to a much more inclusive sort of um Uh, egalitarian approach to economic development, which he himself argues would have led to um, much more ethnic harmony. And uh, that vision has largely um, been rejected, I think, for the most part.
2: And I think that is um, one of the many reasons that I would urge you all to read the book, because Uh, Such plan or such vision, after being rejected, they seemed to be buried forever um, in archive or in documents or even being brushed off from history entirely. And this book kind of uncovers or taking us back in time to show the emergence, uh, the development of these individual voices, voices either from indeed um, individual or those Private sectors or those individuals that leading the state effort to um, kind of build the things or build the reality that we are not that we are almost taken for granted today. And um, as we are closing to the end, there are two more questions that I cannot hold. But to ask you, the one is, in addition to the many fascinating stories that already uh, contained in this book, is there, please, limit to one one story that you have to leave out in publishing this book? Yeah, I think um,
0: I think I I chose to emphasize. Uh, Miao Yuntai on the the side of the provincial government. And there's other fascinating figures who are really involved in economic planning. And um, one of them is uh, Lu Chongren, who, like Longyun, came from the Northeast Yunnan Yi communities. But he himself was was very much involved in trying to... um, create institutions for top down outsider controlled development in, in the Thai, uh, regions. And, um, I think at some point I'd love to see somebody explore him and, uh, this, uh, this story, because the, the, the story of, of, um, Ethnic inequality is is actually pretty complicated in in Yunnan, and I think I've I've only uh, captured part of it so far.
2: So if you are leaving this Lu story to some other brilliant scholar to uncover, what about your next book? What's the next step? I think after already two important monographs, Asian Borderlands, Copper Conquests, What's the next problem that you are going to conquer? Or
1: you going to
0: conquer? <laughs> I I don't know if I will uh, conquer it uh, or not, but the next uh, the next project is um, really more of an intellectual history of the corporation in China. I think that there's room to explore the development of ideas about what a company is. Or should be, and what it should be trying to uh, achieve, and what that what the relationship is between corporations and uh, society. And um, this is, uh, I think, related to some um, controversial topics in the news today uh, about uh, Huawei or other other companies. But I think that. At the moment, we don't know enough about the history of Chinese corporations and um, thought about them in order to have a really informed conversation. And so I'd like to uh, hopefully help to create that more informed conversation.
2: Okay. So we will be watching out for a history (laughs) of cooperation. In China, I don't know how far you will be going back in time this time or which region you will be focusing on, but that's all the things to look forward to. And um, as we wrap up, I will mention again that today we um, have the honor here with Patterson Giersch and his new book, Corporate Conquests, Business, the State, and Origins of Ethnic Inequality in Southwest China, that came out 2020 with Stanford University Press. Thank you again, Pat, for your time, and thank you for listening.
0: Thank you so much, Wei Ying. I really appreciate your careful reading, and I've enjoyed the conversation a great deal.
2: Yeah, thank you, um, and thank you, audience, for listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Uh, See you or talk to you next time.